Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now. Revelation chapter 15 is where we'll be. And if you're visiting with us, um, I am delighted that you've chosen to come and worship the Lord Jesus with us here at Cornerstone. If you've joined us sometime during the holidays over the last six weeks, then it might be a surprise for you to know that generally speaking, on a regular basis, we as a church are committed to verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. And uh, up until about six weeks ago, we were studying through the Revelation. Uh, Actually, this will be the 40th sermon that we've done on that book, so we've been in it quite a while. And um, I'm going to jump back in where we left off. I was sick about seven weeks ago, and Jeff filled the pulpit. I was planning to preach this sermon, um, and I toyed with the idea of a couple of different things this week just to, you know, bring in the new year, but I thought what better way for us to reconvene our time this year than to get back into the steady preaching of God's Word. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 15, and let me just let you know where we are in the book, because there is a pattern, there is... Uh, a way in which you can read the book that helps you to understand where you are in the story that the Lord Jesus is revealing to John, who then reveals it to the church. Um, at the very beginning of the book, Jesus, um, John sees a vision of Jesus, and in that vision, Jesus tells him that I have come to tell you what was, what is, and what is to come. And the revelation is filled with Truth that was revealed to the saints of God in the Old Covenant is filled with truth that had been revealed at that time to the New Covenant Church, the New Testament Christian, and it had information about what was to come, and that's where we've been studying. Um, And here's where we've been. We've seen throughout our study of the Revelation that these visions come to us in series of sevens, series of sevens, and numerology plays a heavy role in the Revelation, we first saw that Jesus wrote seven different letters to seven different churches in the first century. And then we moved on from that to this vision of heaven and Jesus receiving from the throne of God the the seven-sealed document, which is the inheritance rights of the universe. And then he begins to open those seven seals. So we move from the series of seven letters to the series of seven seals. And then we move from the seven seals into the seven trumpets. And in between the seven trumpets and the seven bowls of wrath or the seven plagues that we're about to begin to study, there is a series of seven visions. And that's what we've been studying recently. And this particular passage we're going to look at today is the last of those seven visions. And it falls within the revelation in that way. So let's read this text, understanding that we're seeing the end of one series of visions, and John is also going to introduce to us the next series of visions that is to come. But we're in Revelation 15. Read along with me or just follow along in your copy of God's Word as we read verses 1 through 4. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, 
And also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is God's word. Now would you pray with me before we go any further in our study of it? Father, I do thank you for your word, and I thank you for this gathering of your people to sing your praises, to hear your word read and taught, to remember your sacrifice, and to recommit our hearts to it. And now, as we open your word, let us continue to worship you as we focus on what you have revealed to us, as we receive the word that is given, and we respond to it with faith and obedience. I pray that you would move among us and convict our hearts and our minds of sin, that you would convict our hearts and minds of the truth of the gospel, and that you would truly give us a deeper understanding of what you have done, what you are doing, and what you will do in us and through us for your glory's sake. Accomplish your purpose through the preaching of your word. Bring conviction where it is necessary, affliction, but also bring comfort to your people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. A late 19th century traveler wrote of his challenging return home on an overseas trip. Here's how he he described this particular trip. He says, it was stormy from shore to shore. Now think, he's, he's on a ship out in the middle of the ocean. It was stormy from one shore to the other shore. There was not a single fair day on the entire trip. But the place to which we were going was my home. And in that place was my family. In that place was my church. In that place were my friends. All those who were dear to me as to my own life. And I lay perfectly happy even in the midst of sickness and nausea. All that the boat could do to me could not keep down my exultation and joy which rose up in me. For every single hour it was carrying me nearer and nearer to everything that I loved in this world. It was deep, it was dark midnight when we came to Halifax. I could see nothing, yet the moment we came into Stillwater, I rose from my berth and I got up on deck. Now this is a story of an individual who was so motivated to get home to the people he loved that he was willing to look upon his days and days and days of seasickness as nothing compared to the peace and rest that was to come when he arrived at the end of his journey. Some of us may have experienced something like that. Our longing for home, that homesickness that we feel, our desire to be with those we love, it's so powerful that even the the momentary sufferings and afflictions that we face in this life seem like a small price to pay so long as we can reach the end of our journey. But the sufferings that we face in this world as Christians, the Apostle Paul tells us that even those are not worthy to be compared to the glory and the joy that is set before us. In this age, saints are weather-beaten and storm-tossed and weary and sick to their stomachs because of affliction and persecution. And the, 
John, as he writes this revelation to us, as he reveals the things that God has revealed to him, we've seen that in the experience of the saints in, in this world and in this age. Persecution, suffering, temptation, all-out onslaught on the part of the beast, and yet we understand something. As these visions come from the beginning to the end, we see that the saints have this longing for home, this longing for the end, this longing to be with God that helps us to endure. And for us in this particular age, we don't know when the end will come, but we face our own set of temptations and trials and sufferings and persecutions brought on by sin, brought on by the sin of others, brought on by uh, a, a a political environment that's hostile toward our gospel, a social environment that's hostile towards our faithfulness to Christ. And we should have something of that same longing for the rest and peace that heaven will bring. And John gives us this picture here of the saints of God having come to the end and the saints of God are standing around the throne of God, standing on that sea of glass and there's no no trouble there. There's no suffering anymore. In fact, It's a celebration of all that God has done to bring us to that point. That's what this vision is all about. This morning in this vision, we see the saints of God, we see believers in Christ, as well as old covenant saints, I I believe, based on the mention of Moses here. They've been called to heaven at the end of a life filled with trials. They have conquered the beast, he tells us. We are standing before the throne of God with harps in our hands, ready to celebrate, ready to rejoice, ready to sing the praises of our God. In in other words, at this stage, our race is run. And we have kept the faith, and it's time to celebrate what God has done in us. And this vision gives us really three parts to look at. It gives us a a little bit of an, an understanding of what is to come because it talks about the seven angels with their seven trumpets, or not seven trumpets, but seven bowls. And then it talks about uh, something that's already taken place. So we're going to look a little bit at the future, a little bit at the past, and then we're going to end with this understanding of the song of the saints. So let's look first at the sign of what is to come. If you would, just look back at verse one with me. Then I saw another sign in heaven. Great and amazing, seven angels, seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now the opening phrase here in this verse lets us know that we see a new sign. As I mentioned earlier, there are seven signs that make up this particular section of the Revelation. And and this is a new one. This is another sign that has appeared, and heaven is the backdrop for this sign. Right? We see that right there in the text. I saw another sign of heaven. So that's the picture. We're back at the throne of God. And, and John moves from earth to heaven. He moves all over the place in these visions. And, and this one is a particular vision of heaven. This is the seventh sign in the series of sevens. Um, and this vision helps us to know, based on where we've been so far, that between chapter 12 and right here at the beginning of chapter 15, we have once again spanned the entire gospel age. Now, I interpret the revelation and all of those different seven visions as spanning the same period of time. They're simply giving us an understanding of the period of time that we know to be the gospel age, the time between the first and second coming of Christ. And and in every vision, we see a little something different. We'll see something more, something uh, ratcheted up. It's always revealing to us the bigger picture of what God is doing on the world stage. But... uh, For instance, we've seen God's judgment poured out at a specific time during those visions, 
And with every series of visions, that judgment becomes more intense. The picture becomes more clear. This cycle of visions began in chapter 12, which I believe, again, is the beginning of the gospel age, the time at which Christ comes into the world, his first advent, the incarnation. And this one was very clear about that because the vision in chapter 12 begins with a woman who's about to give birth. It's a clear picture of the incarnation and the first coming of Christ. This woman was about to give birth to the male child who's going to rule the the nations with a rod of iron, but the child was taken up to God, right? He was resurrected and ascended to God, and the the serpent, the dragon, was there trying to destroy the child. And then, when the child was taken away, he set his sights on the church. And that's what we've been studying. Well, that's what we had been studying uh, before our break. What began with Jesus' first coming, his incarnation, now ends with the saints of God gathered around the throne. That's what we see here in chapter 15. The saints of God gathered around the throne. This series of visions has brought us full circle yet again. And we're seeing this gospel age through the particular lens that God has revealed to us. We're seeing the the consummation of all things. And this is not a coincidence. This is not an accident. Now, I don't expect that you're going to remember all of the sermons that have been preached over the last eight months, six months or so. But let me just give you a little bit of a reminder of the parallels and the patterns that we have seen that cause me to interpret this book the way that I do. Each of the different seven visions that make up the book of the Revelation are describing that same period of time, and there are telltale signs that help us to see when the vision begins and when the vision ends. Namely, you see the first vision has something to do with the coming of Christ or the coming of a particular age, and then by the time we get to the end, the sixth element and the seventh element are the same. For instance... The sixth element of the vision cycle that we see when the seals are opened, it it ushered in a great earthquake. Y'all remember that? It ushered in a great earthquake, the sun became dark, the stars fell to earth, the wicked cried out for the mountains to fall on them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb. So all the way back in the sixth seal, we were seeing the wrath of God being displayed at the end of the age, and it happened, it coincided with the sixth seal. And then the seventh seal was opened, and that described to us God protecting his people. He gathered the church before his throne, and then there was silence. In other words, everything was done. The vision was over, and then the next series of visions began to open up. So the sixth seal revealed God's wrath, and the seventh seal revealed this picture of heaven and God's people gathered before the throne. The same thing can be seen with the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet unleashed four angels who set about to kill a third of mankind with plagues, uh, and then they were supposed to kill 7,000 people, which is a symbolic number of completion, and guess what they were killed by? A great earthquake. That was the sixth trumpet. And then the seventh trumpet brought us back to heaven, where the saints of God were gathered around the throne of God, singing the praises of God. The temple of God was opened, and then that vision cycle was complete. Very similar, the parallels are unmistakable. And here we are again. And in the sixth sign that we've seen in this series, we understood that the wrath of God was unleashed upon the world in a series of two harvests. Do y'all remember that? 
the two harvests. There was a harvest that Christ came and he partook of and he gathered all of the saints into him. And then there was another angel that was with him. And that angel ushered in all of those who were part of the earth, who had rejected Christ. And that's where we see the first instance of them being gathered to suffer the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the almighty. The sixth sign ushered in God's wrath. And now here we are at the end of that vision, and guess where we are again? We're back in heaven, and the saints of God are gathered together before the throne of God, and they're singing the praises of God once again. The parallels here are unmistakable, and they make clear to us that these patterns are telling us the same story over and over again. Now, you may hold to a different position than that, and that's fine. We don't affirm a particular position here as a church. We leave it to your conscience and your study. But as I study and read the scriptures, I can't come to any other conclusion. In each case, as the vision unfolds and we see the same period of time, we see something more intense. We see some new vision that is given to us, some new instance of something along the way, but it's telling us the same story. John says... That in this particular instance, there is something unique. There is something special about it. He says in this case that this one is great and amazing. He tells us that these seven angels and these seven plagues are to come. And then he says that this is the last, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And what does that mean? This verse serves as a conclusion to the or conclusion to what we've seen so far, and an introduction to what is to come. And what we're going to study over the next seven or eight weeks or so is going to be the seven plagues or the seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. And John tells us that this, well, here's what I believe he's telling us, that this is going to be the last depiction in this revelation of God's vengeance, of God's just anger being poured out on the world. The vision to come will be the last in that it describes the completion of God's judgment for sin. Now, if you hold to a futurist view, if you hold to a um, dispensationalist view uh, of a a pre-trib, pre-mill understanding, you would have a little bit of a different understanding. You would believe, perhaps, and there are a lot of variations within this, that these seven bowls represent the chronological end of history, believing that the term last that he uses here, the term eschatos, is a reference to the end of the world as we know it. I wouldn't disagree with you, but I don't think it's the only time we see it. We've seen it multiple times. But the way that John is using that word here indicates that this is not just the end of the world, this is the last vision. This is the last time we're going to see this displayed with the same intensity. This is the final display of God's wrath and judgment, which we are about to study And we've already seen this thing described multiple times, which is why I hold the position that I do. And you're welcome to hold the position that you hold. So these bowls of wrath that we're about to study, they represent the final vision and the most complete expression of God's wrath that we have seen to this point. But before we get to the bowls, John gives us yet another description of what will take place after the judgment of God falls upon the earth. And he does this by pointing back to something from the past. So we've seen a little bit about what is to come. Now let's see this memory of what has been. Look at verse 2. John says, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. So Revelation 15, verse 2. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. 
Now, did you notice in verse 1 when John was describing what we're going to see that he, he used a word that you don't see that often in Scripture. He used the word plagues. And when we think about plagues, there's a lot of different things that can come to mind. But one of the things that probably should jump into your mind, if you know your Bible well and you know the story of God's people well, when you think about the plagues, you might think about the, the Exodus account. How many of y'all have your mind jumps into the ten plagues? Yeah, okay. In that particular season of Israel's history, they were not yet a nation. They were um, a series of, uh, they were a family at this point. They had grown so numerous that uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians had enslaved them, and their enslavement had become more and more severe. But God had made a promise, as we've, we've studied even recently. God had made a promise to Abraham. And then God had fulfilled that promise to a certain degree, but he, he had other promises that he made to Abraham's sons. And in the midst of their suffering, they cried out to the Lord God. And the Bible says that God heard their cries and he was moved with compassion for them because he had made a covenant promise to them. And so God begins to work to rescue his people from their slavery. He began to fight against Pharaoh and at the same time rescue his people from their bondage. And as you read through the whole of the Old Testament, from that point forward, you will come to see that over and over again in the Psalms, in the Proverbs, in the historical accounts, that there is no more significant Old Testament redemptive event than the Exodus account when God fought for his people, when God rescued his people, and when God led his people into the land of promise. And the language of this particular passage in the Revelation lets us understand that John is bringing the language of Exodus back into the experience of God's people. He's doing that to help us understand the significance of what is done. He puts Moses and the Lamb alongside one another. The Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb the two most significant redemptive events in all of Scripture would have to be the Exodus account and then the, the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And that's not a mistake about what's going on here. John is bringing those two things together to help us understand the significance of this particular moment. John sees a sea of glass as he looks at the throne of God. And this sea of glass is mingled with fire. And just, just so you can remember, this is a sea of glass that John has seen before. In Revelation chapter 4, John saw the throne of God, and he described it this way. He said, before the throne, there was a sea of glass, like crystal. Now, what does that look like? Well, you, you'll have to picture it in your mind. There, there are some other passages that tell us about this, because John was not the first one to see it. In fact, if we go into the Old Testament, and when we go back to that season around the Exodus account, this would have been after the Exodus account, we see that there are other individuals who saw this sea of glass surrounding the throne of God. When Moses and Aaron and the sons went up onto Mount Sinai to speak with God, they saw God upon his throne, and they noticed that under his feet there was a pavement of sapphire stones like the very heaven for clearness. Now, the language is a little bit different, but ultimately, we're, we're talking about the same vision. The pavement of sapphire crystal that Moses and Aaron and the sons of Aaron saw is the same thing that John is seeing. It's the sea of glass. It's this 
thing that stands between the throne of heaven and all of creation. There's this dividing line. There's this partition that separates creation from the creator. That's what we're seeing here. And in order for creation to move into the presence of God, we have to pass through that sea of glass. And what does that represent to us? What does it mean? Well, throughout Scripture, we, we see references to oceans and seas. And, and, and you might not remember all this, but even back in the very beginning at the, the creation account, when God created the heavens and the earth, we even see then that there's this depiction of the sea and the, the Holy Spirit is hovering over the waters like a dove, but the, the waters at that particular time are dark and chaotic. And throughout Scripture, we see that, that reference to the seas and the oceans as being this uncontrollable force, this dark and evil and chaotic thing. But in the presence of God, the sea is perfectly calm, just like glass. It does its bidding. He is its creator. He is the one who controls it. And, and if you're thinking back to the Exodus, you might remember as the Israelites stood before the Red Sea, God controlled the sea and made it do what he wanted it to do so that he could rescue his people. So there's this picture in the, in the scriptures of the, the seas and the oceans as being chaotic, this place of evil and darkness, this uncontrollable thing. And yet in the presence of God, the sea does his bidding. It is calm. The sea does what he tells him. But anyone who would approach, according to these visions, the throne of God must come through these waters. But why is it mingled with fire? Why is it mingled with fire? All right, I'm going to ask you to picture in your mind that Exodus season. The plagues have occurred. The Passover lamb has been slain. The Israelites have begun their march out of Egypt and in this particular instance, they have the army of Pharaoh behind them and the uncontrollable Red Sea of Chaos in front of them. And do you remember what was taking place, what was protecting them from the army of Pharaoh? It was the Lord God himself in this pillar of fire. They're caught between two instruments of death the army of Pharaoh, and the sea in front of them. And yet God is on their side. He stands between them and their enemies as a pillar of fire. And then he controls the sea so that his special and beloved people can go safely through. John is using this imagery here. He's bringing all of this together. Remember, the revelation is about what was and what is and what is to come. And so far in our study of the Revelation, we have seen the Old Testament brought into these pictures time and time again. I think we're seeing it yet again. And what is it telling us or what is it reminding us of? There was only one way for God's people to be rescued in the Old Testament. And there was only one way for them to come into the promised land. And it wasn't their way, it was God's way. And God was going to be the one who made the way. He was going to protect them from their enemies on one side and he was going to open the waters for them on the other side so that they could go safely through. And the same is true for us today in this new covenant. There is only one way to be reconciled to God and it's in the way that he leads us. No matter how incredible the way may seem, like the journey through the Red Sea or by trusting in the resurrected Son of God, God is the one who determines the way to him. 
The sea of glass mingled with fire is meant to remind us of the exodus and to teach us that a new exodus has taken place because of Jesus Christ and all who wish to come near to God, all who desire fellowship with him, all who want to be at his throne, all who desire to be reconciled to the sovereign, we must come through the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he's accomplished for us. He is the true Passover lamb who has set us free from our bondage to sin, Satan, and death. And all who trust in him are being protected by the fire of God's jealous love for his people and will go safely through the waters of judgment to stand in the very presence of God. Notice that these individuals who are standing in the presence of God, if you go back and you look back at verse 2, These individuals who are standing in the presence of God, it says something about them. It says that they have conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name and that they are standing beside this sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. Now you should remember the beast, right? We studied the beast just a a few chapters ago. This beast is a, a representation of the demonic forces in this world. This is the same beast that we studied in Revelation 13. And this beast works through the, uh, the institutions of worldly nations and worldly religion and worldly seduction. These are the tools that Satan uses to attack the church in his attempt to destroy our faith and lead us astray. But here we see we've come all the way through those temptations. We've come all the way through all of those signs and we're standing before God and, and we have conquered this beast. And we've conquered this beast by our faith in Christ. That's what the scriptures keep telling us over and over and over again. His victory becomes our confidence. We conquer the beast by holding fast to the testimony of Jesus as Lord and Savior. We overcome by refusing to worship the beast, by refusing to believe its lies, by refusing to uh, obey its systems. We will face the fury and hatred of the beast. There's no doubt about that. Yet God will see us safely through, and in the end, we will overcome. And this is not just language we see in the Revelation. This is the language that Jesus told his disciples throughout his time with them. For instance, in John chapter 16, verse 33, we read this, In the world you will have trouble, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And the implication there is you're going to suffer. I know there are a lot of TV preachers who want you to believe that if you're suffering, then something's wrong with your faith. And yet, Jesus says over and over again, if you're facing suffering, you might just be doing it right. Because he promised us in this world, we will have tribulation, but take heart, I've overcome the world. The implication is that his victory is our victory. And our confidence is in his strength to see us through. In 1 John chapter 4, by the way, this is the same John that has written this revelation to us. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, Little children, you are from God and you have overcome them. Who is the them? It's those who are in the world, those who are tempting us, those who are seeking to lead us astray. He goes on and he says, For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Again, we have confidence, not in our own strength, but in the strength that God provides and in the way that God has led us. And then finally, in John 5, 4 and 5, we read this, 1 John 5, 4 and 5, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. 
Don't miss that. This is the victory that has overcome the temptation and the trial and the suffering and the persecution and the affliction that you will face in this world. It is our faith. Our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all he has done. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Brothers and sisters, it's our faith in Christ that's going to see us through. Okay. It's no secret that we are facing unique trials at this particular time as American Christians. It's no secret. We're facing trials, we're facing temptations, and there are particular challenges to living out our faith in boldness and freedom within this cultural moment, right? We face a volatile political climate and an aggressively intolerant social climate. In the name of equality and diversity, we are losing freedoms every day. And the worldly system around us is not neutral, It is working to make it more and more challenging for us to be faithful and outspoken Christians every single day. This is not a mystery. But the scriptures are clear that we will overcome these temptations, not by relying upon our own strength, nor by hiding our faith from the world, but by trusting in Christ and seeking to be more faithful to him and to his word. This is our calling. We hold fast We don't abandon it. We don't need to be more like the world. We need to be more like Christ and more like the New Testament church. Our love for the world must diminish and our love for Christ and one another must increase. So there's your New Year's message, if you will. What are we going to look like? What are we going to look for? What are we going to expect in the world that is to come in 2023? We can expect the same that we've seen and perhaps even more intense persecution and affliction as Christians. And what is our answer? What are, what are our marching orders? What is the way that God has revealed to us that we are to walk through this so that we can overcome the world's temptations? Is that we hold fast to Christ and his word and we love one another fearlessly and we aren't fear... Uh, We aren't fearful in the midst of this world, but we live out boldly the faith that he has given to us. Not less Christian, more Christian. Not less like Christ and his word, but more like Christ and his word. And if we do this, look where this vision tells us we will end up. We will end up where our faith in Christ is intact, and we will be standing beside the sea of glass with harps in our hands, celebrating all the great and amazing things that God has done. It's not a mistake that the saints in heaven don't talk about how awesome they are, they talk about how awesome God is. No one stands before the Holy One of Israel and boasts about their own strength. We will stand if we are allowed to stand, and we will boast about his amazing holiness and power. These victorious saints, and I believe this is referring to us, we, they, have conquered the beast by faith in the person and work of Christ, And we will stand before the throne of God after his judgment has fallen on the world and we will sing the praises of our Lord and Redeemer. That's the picture here. And we need not only have it in mind as some future reality, but it is a present motivation for how we're going to live in this world. One more thing we need to see in this text. The celebration of the new exodus. Look at verse 3. So we've seen this picture of what is to come. We've seen this image of 
the, the saints around the throne of God and this Old Testament image is brought together with the New Testament gospel and now we see the song. They sing the song of Moses in verse 3, the servant of God and the song of the Lamb. So the theme of Exodus continues to dominate this vision. John has already mentioned the plagues and now he mentions Moses and the song of Moses. And you might know your Old Testament well enough to know that after they came through the Red Sea, Moses wrote a song and he taught it to the Israelites and they sang the song about God's redemption. And this wasn't the only song that Moses wrote, but I think this is the one that is being referred to here. And and the reason that John brings it back up is that he wants us to equate the new exodus through Christ and the old exodus. And the new is greater than the old in that we don't come into the promised land here on earth, but we come into the, the promised land which is into the very presence of God. People of God haven't simply been saved from our bondage to the tyrant of this world. We've been freed from Satan himself along with all of his schemes. That's what the vision has revealed to us, that behind all of the machinations of this world is Satan himself motivating and moving, and the scriptures tell us that we have conquered that beast because of Christ. The plagues that God is about to unleash upon the world are not simply going to affect the pagans in Egypt, but they will affect all who have given their their loyalty to the beast and to the idolatry of the things of the world. The sea that we must cross is not the Red Sea, but it's this sea of glass that spans the material world and the immaterial world where God dwells. And this song that we sing is not simply the song of one man who served to lead God's people to deliverance, but the song of the Lamb who ransomed and redeemed men and women from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's the difference. And that's the song we're singing. We sing, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. And all nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. This is a beautiful song. And it's a song that tells us a lot about our God and very little about us, save what he's done for us. We sing the song of God, the Almighty, the all-powerful, the omnipotent one. He's the one who exercises divine control over all of reality. There is no God beside him, and we praise him for the great and amazing deed that he has done, specifically the work to save us from our sins. And we will praise him for his justice and his truth. We will praise him for the justice of laying down before the men of this world and the women of this world the justice that they deserve, the punishment for sin. And we will see afresh the forgiveness and the richness of the forgiveness because apart from God's grace, we deserve the same. We will praise him as the king over all nations, not simply over the nation of Israel, but all of the nations. And we will glorify him because he is the Holy One of Israel the Holy One. Holiness is the essential attribute of God. It is something that describes to us the Godness of God. No other word can adequately describe his perfection, his uniqueness, his moral purity, his infinite power. Everything that makes God God is communicated in this word holy. And all nations will come and worship him as the Holy One, and they will sing a song of his deliverance. The song of the Lamb, which reminds us of the Passover Lamb, which reminds us of Jesus and what he's accomplished. 
He is the lamb slain so that his blood could be poured out to forgive us of our sins. He is the one who stood in the gap for us. He is the one whose blood not only covers the doorposts in Goshen, but it covers the hearts of his people. That's this vision. A vision of what is to come, a vision of what was, and then a song of celebration and the redemption that we enjoy as Christians. So let's conclude. As this seventh sign comes to a close, we see the picture of the saints in heaven. We, we, we see them in the presence of God. We see them singing. It's the only appropriate thing to do when we rightly come to understand the forgiveness that we've been afforded by faith. But here are a few things that I think we can uniquely take away from this passage. Just a, a few points maybe of application, some things that we should understand as we leave this morning. Number one, God will be faithful to his covenant promises. God will be faithful to his covenant promises. In Exodus chapter 6, as God begins to move and, and God begins to work things out to accomplish his purpose in bringing his people out of bondage, God speaks to Moses and he, he tells him this. He says, I am the Lord. I made a covenant with Abraham. I made a promise. And I have heard the cries of my people and I will deliver and I will redeem you. I will bring you out from under your burdens. I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be for you and you will be to me as a son. And then everything that followed in the Exodus was a depiction or was a picture of God's covenant love on display. And God has made a covenant promise to you as well if you're a believer in Christ. God has made a covenant promise to us and there are many, but I'll give you one. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. If you love the Lord Jesus and you are trusting in him as your Savior and Lord, the Bible tells us that you do that because God has already moved in your heart. God made you alive though you were dead in your sins. And by his spiritual power, he brought you to spiritual life. And that is the beginning that Philippians 1 is talking about. And he who began that good work in you, we're promised that he will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And along the way, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which means that we are to continue to apply ourselves to the study of God's word and the faithfulness that is to follow the life of those who claim to be Christians, right? We are to grow in our knowledge and we are to grow in our repentance. And yet it's the spirit that's going to continue to work in us to bring us to that point. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who is at work in us to bring us to that point. So we have a responsibility, but our great hope is not in our strength, is it? No. It's in the faithfulness of our covenant-keeping God. If you are a believer in Christ, you can count on God to be faithful to finish his work in you. And that would include bringing conviction of sin into your heart. But he will do it, and he will bring us all the way home to heaven in the end. No matter what the sickness of nausea we may face in this life, he will bring us home to him in the end. That's the first thing. God will be faithful to his covenant promise. Secondly, God will make something of his purposes clear to us when we get there. Dennis Johnson, he's a 
a commentary writer on this particular book. It's, it, his commentary has been so helpful. He notes that the dividing line between heaven and earth, right, that sea of glass, he notes that the, the dividing line between the creator and the creation is a sea of glass, meaning that it's clear and we can see through it. He says this, heaven's floor will be earth's ceiling. And he extrapolates out from that some things that we see throughout the revelation. Things like this, that when we are in the presence of God, he will wipe away every tear from our eye. Which gives us this idea that we will have a deeper understanding of what we've been through. And all of the things from our past won't just necessarily be washed away. It's not like our minds are going to completely reboot and we're going to reformat the hard drive. We will know those things, but we will know them more clearly than we've ever known them. When we get to heaven, everything will become clear as we look back at the history of the earth. We will look down and see all of the difficulties, all of the hardships, all of the struggles, and all of the battles that believers are enduring. And from the vantage point of heaven, we will be able to understand how God has been working in our lives. We might not know everything, but we will know more clearly. The Bible says that we will know as we are fully known. And there are things that you are walking through right now, things that you don't understand What is this strange providence of God that you're enduring? Something of the promise of heaven is that all will be made clear and whatever pain, whatever sorrow is still there, he will comfort us and wipe the tears away. There there is coming a point when we will see and acknowledge the great and amazing deeds of God because he will show them to us and comfort us in them. Last, God's people are a people redeemed by blood. We cannot forget this. We cannot abandon our identity. We are a people covered by the blood of a lamb. This was the same for the Old Testament Israelites, which is why the Exodus account was something that they sang about, that they reminded their children of year after year after year. It's something that was the hallmark of their year the Old Testament saints, when they, when they fled from Egypt by the power of God, they were known specifically as the people with the blood on their doors. It was the blood of the lamb that covered them and kept them free from the plague of the firstborn. They were the people covered by the blood of the lamb. They didn't fully understand it, but we do. God provided a substitute whose death and blood would fully satisfy the debt of sin that we owed to God. And Jesus is that true and final Passover lamb, whose death takes away the sin of the world. In Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5, when John is just introducing the book to us, he says this about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the one who loves us and who has freed us from our sins by his blood. As God's covenant people, we are a people redeemed by blood. If you're a believer today, it's because God has credited to your account the blood of Christ as a ransom price for your sin. And he has also attributed the righteousness of Christ in the place of your guilt. That's who you are. That's our identity. Let's not forget that as this new year gets underway. We are the people of the blood of the Lamb. But if you're not a believer today, then you have but one hope in the end. There is only one way through the sea. There is only one way to be reconciled to your creator and it's the blood of Christ which can pay the price for your sins. Otherwise, you'll pay for them yourself. You can't be good enough 
to get to God. You can't clean yourself up enough. In fact, the scriptures make clear over and over again that you on your best day is like a garment worthy to be tossed aside. And that's not just to diminish who you are, it's to reveal who you are. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And our only hope is is what Christ has done for us. Our hope and yours as well must be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. So let me pray for all of us and ask that the Lord would prepare us for this year by his word and his gospel. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your scriptures that reveal things that we need to remember and things that we didn't even know. And I pray that you would allow the truth of your word to to rest upon our hearts as well as our minds. We are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that means that we have a lot of different ways that we are to engage with these truths. Let them fill our minds, let them fill our hearts as well, and let our strength be renewed and motivated to serve you today. Lord, I do thank you for everyone who is here. And I pray that this next year that is to come, that you would guide us, that you would strengthen us, that you would grow us, that you would mature us as a people, that you would cause us to be more and more faithful. And while I do pray that you would protect us from the temptation of our enemy, I pray that you would make us bold and strong to uphold the faith no matter how difficult it becomes. And let your truth motivate us in that. And for those who are here who don't know you, like Jeff mentioned and prayed earlier, those who are strangers to your covenants and your promises, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts to see their need and that you would fill them with your spirit so that they may come to know Christ as Lord and Savior and King and hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.